Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to Christianese. I'm your host, Drew Fitzgerald, and today is a part two to the previous episode, What is God's Will for My Life? If you haven't listened to that episode yet, I encourage you to go back and listen to it first, just because it has some really helpful context for this conversation. In the previous episode, we talked about what God's will is for your life. But a lot of people, myself included, have this idea that if we're doing God's will, life will only be circumstantially good. But what about when things go poorly? When we're doing all of the right things and our circumstances just keep getting worse? What about when unwanted and unexpected things like pain and suffering come into our lives? If God is all good and all powerful, then why do bad things happen to good people? Why do bad things happen at all? Christianese, and this episode is about God's permissive will, or bad things, good people. Now, before I get started in talking about the problem of evil and suffering, I just want to say that I know this is not simply an intellectual issue. There's a lot of people listening to this episode right now, and actually probably a lot of the people who have this question in general who wonder how can a good God allow suffering to exist because they've experienced suffering. It's not simply a philosophical question that they're interested in debating. It's an experience they're trying to explain. So while I am going to start with the philosophical and theological answer to this question, I'm not going to end there. Because Christianity is not just a set of intellectual answers and philosophies. It is theology that changes the way you live, changes the way you see the world. It introduces you to God as He is. And when you know God as He is, there's hope. But as we're just starting, I acknowledge that a lot of us are not in a place of hope. So let's start at the beginning. If God is all good, all loving, and all powerful, then why do evil and suffering exist in the world? This question is massive. It's so big that it's not just a Christian problem, but everybody, no matter who they are, no matter where they're from, when they're from, or their belief systems, we all have to come up with an answer for why there is evil and suffering in the world. For example, if you believe in the law of karma, then evil and suffering are the ways that the universe has to necessarily balance itself. Or if you're Buddhist, then you may be suffering because you are overly attached to someone or something. Or if you hold to one of the fastest growing views in the United States, that the universe is uncaring and random, then evil and suffering aren't even issues of justice or morality, they may just be the way the machine works. 
Christians have a profound philosophical and theological answer to this question, but we really don't talk about it much. Because for a lot of us who grew up in youth group culture, challenges to our faith were generally avoided. And so when we hear an atheist say, an all-good, all-powerful God has no good reason to allow evil and suffering in the world, we don't really know what to say. But let's not run from it. Let's address this problem head-on. The assertion, formalized by philosopher J.L. Mackey in his 1955 paper, Omnipotence and Evil, goes like this. An all-good, all-powerful, all-knowing God has no good reason to allow evil and suffering to exist. But because evil and suffering do exist, then it may be that God is not all-powerful and he can't stop evil, in which case he's not, by definition, God. Or, if he is all-powerful and simply chooses not to end evil and suffering, then he cannot be all-good. But no matter the situation, the God of the Bible does not exist, at least not as we have defined him. And therefore, belief in the God of the Bible is illogical. This philosophical idea has to be one of the most successful of the last hundred years. Because even if you don't know J.L. Mackey's name, you've almost certainly heard someone use his argument as proof for God's non-existence. Whether it's an eighth grader on your junior high playground, a debate on your college campus, or someone just chatting it up in your workplace. Despite the popularity and force of this argument, there is an answer. And it was formulated in 1977 by philosopher Alvin Plantinga, commonly known as the free will defense. In essence, it says that if God creates a creature with free will, they have an equal capability to do moral good and moral evil. When they exercise their free will to do evil things, it's not because God isn't good or powerful, but because they're using the free will that he gave them. When J.L. Mackey heard the free will defense, he conceded that his argument was wrong that it is not illogical to believe in an all-good and all-powerful God, even though there is evil in the world. What's incredible is that planting his argument is explicitly Christian. It assumes a literal Adam and Eve, two creatures given free will and the choice to either do moral good or moral evil. And it also assumes a literal fall when these two creatures chose moral evil. It's really interesting that there are Christian circles where we debate whether or not Adam and Eve were literally real people or if Genesis 1 through 3 is just an allegory. But 20th century philosophers, when they look at Genesis 1 through 3, see a profound philosophical answer to why the world is the way that it is. We live in a broken and fallen world, and we have an all good, all powerful, all knowing God, which raises another question. Why does God allow evil to continue? Why doesn't he do something about it? There are some things God allows because they bring about his sovereign will. We call this his permissive will, that he permits or allows things that are sin that he takes no delight in so that his greater and eternal will might be accomplished. That said, God is not doing nothing. 
I know that's absolutely how we can feel when we're going through suffering or when we're seeing suffering. It seems like our prayers are bouncing off the ceiling and God isn't present. But I'm going to go through three stories in Scripture, and I want you to ask the questions we all ask when we're going through suffering. God, where are you, and why is this happening? The first story is the story of Joseph in Genesis. Joseph was the 11th of 12 sons, and he was his father's favorite. He received special treatment from his father, special clothing, and God even gave Joseph visions that he would be a great ruler one day. Everything looked like it could only go well for Joseph. But his father's favoritism drove his brothers to jealousy, and one day they kidnapped him and sold him as a slave to some traveling traders. They took his robe, they dipped it in blood, and they told his father that Joseph had been killed. Joseph was sold to an Egyptian nobleman named Potiphar. And in Genesis chapter 39, verses 2 and 5, we read, The Lord was with him. And as a result, Joseph rises to a place of prominence in Potiphar's house. Seems like things are going well. Until one day, Potiphar's wife comes to Joseph and tries to seduce him. And when he refuses, she accuses Joseph of having tried to rape her. Joseph is then thrown into prison, where again in Genesis 39 verse 21 we read the Lord was with Joseph. Joseph rises to a place of respect, so trusted by the warden that he's put in charge of overseeing all of his fellow prisoners. God even gives Joseph the insight to interpret dreams, and one of his interpretations leads to the exoneration of one of his fellow prisoners. Joseph asks the prisoner, remember me, help me get out of here. But the prisoner forgets Joseph for two entire years. Joseph had visions, he had prophecies. God had told him that things were going to go well with him. And here he is, sold into slavery, wrongly accused of a crime and rotting in prison. Where was God? After two years of being forgotten, Pharaoh has a dream that no one can interpret. And the man that Joseph helped free from prison, Pharaoh's cupbearer, remembers Joseph, calls Joseph before Pharaoh, and God helps Joseph interpret this Pharaoh's dreams. The Pharaoh is so overwhelmed by Joseph's God-given wisdom that he makes him the number two in the kingdom, in charge of his entire household. Soon after this, a seven-year famine hits the land, and who comes knocking at Egypt's door but Joseph's brothers and his father? Joseph forgives his brothers and brings them into his house, protecting them from the famine. But they wonder, what if Joseph holds a grudge? What if he's just setting us up for revenge? But Joseph, in Genesis chapter 50 verse 20 says, As for you, you meant to harm me, but God intended it for a good purpose, so he could preserve the lives of many people. So don't be afraid. I'll provide for you and your children. He then consoled them and spoke kindly to them. Did God allow Joseph to be sold into slavery? Yes. Did he allow Joseph to be wrongly accused of rape? Yes. Did he allow Joseph to be forgotten in a prison? Yes. But did that mean that God was not present, that he was not active, that he had abandoned Joseph? No. What we see throughout Joseph's life is that God was with him, 
and he was turning the evil done to Joseph on its head, using it to fulfill his promises and his will, and even to save those who hurt Joseph. I'm extremely hesitant to give a reason for why you're going through suffering or why certain things have happened to you in the past. But I can say this. God isn't absent. He isn't inactive. And he's not done. That's the first story. The second story that gives us insight to God's permissive will is the story of Job. At the very beginning of Job, we find a very unusual scene. Satan enters the throne room of God, and they talk about one of God's faithful servants, Job. Satan said to God, Is it for nothing that Job fears you? Have you not made a hedge around him and his household and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands, and his livestock have increased in the land. But extend your hand and strike everything he has, and he'll no doubt curse you to your face. In other words, God, you're bribing Job to worship you. If you took away the good life and the stuff that you've given him, he'd turn on you in a second. So the Lord said to Satan, All right then, everything he has is in your power. Only do not extend your hand against the man himself. God allows Satan to test Job. And Job suffers like very few men in Scripture suffer. He loses his family, his wealth, his home, everything. And at the end of chapter 1, in verse 20, it says, Job got up and tore his robe. He shaved his head and he threw himself down with his face to the ground. He said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will return. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away but may the name of the Lord forever be praised. He doesn't deny God, and so Satan continues to afflict Job. He suffers to the point where he looks to heaven and asks what many of us ask when we suffer, God, why? God doesn't begrudge Job asking why. But when Job says, God, you have done something wrong in making me suffer, when you allowed, you permitted me to suffer, you did a bad thing. God appears and responds to Job in chapter 38, asking him 77 unanswerable questions. The first of which, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? In other words, Job, if you don't understand how I created the world, you'll never understand the complexities of how it operates. There's nothing wrong with asking God why we're going through something, but that doesn't mean we're going to get an answer, or that the absence of an answer means that there's not one at all. We simply have to understand that we don't have the capacity as finite mortal beings to plumb the depths of the mind of an eternal God. While the story of Job is marked by suffering, it actually ends in hope. Job continued to worship God, proving Satan wrong. In Job 42, God restores everything Job lost and doubles it. And he makes Job a priest, someone who can pray for people who are wandering, lost, or hurting. His experiences became a ministry. Satan was trying to mock the fickleness of God's worshipers, but he actually proved their faithfulness and increased their faith. One of the great mysteries of God's permissive will 
is how he uses what he allows to undo the works of Satan, to confront our pride, and to show us more of himself. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul writes, So that I would not become arrogant, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to trouble me. I asked the Lord three times about this, that it would depart, but he said to me, My grace is enough for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. So I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, that the power of Christ may reside in me. God was present with Job and he had a purpose for him, just like he did with the life of Joseph. But the big difference in this story is that Job didn't know what that purpose was. He wasn't in the heavenly throne room when Satan was mocking God and his followers. And God chose not to tell Job that. What he did tell Job was that he was in control. That he, the one who laid the foundation of the earth, that separated the land from the water, who controls the sunrise, that he's still sovereign. That he's aware of what is going on in the world. And he's not done working yet. Just because we don't know why God is doing what he's doing, doesn't mean that God doesn't know why, or that God is no longer sovereign. The third story is an often skipped over event in the life of Jesus in Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 5. Now there were some present on that occasion who told him, Jesus, about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Apparently Pontius Pilate had ordered some Galileans be murdered while they were making sacrifice or worshiping God. Jesus answered them, do you think these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered these things? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all perish as well. Then Jesus brings up another event, a seemingly random tragedy. Or what about those 18 who were killed when the Tower of Siloam fell on them? Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will also perish as well. In that day, people believed that tragedy was a result of personal sin. That when we suffered, it was because there was something that we had done wrong and God was judging us. But Jesus repudiates that view. Those who suffer or experience tragedy are not being judged by God as terrible sinners. And on the other side of the coin, if your life is going easy and things seem to be going well, you shouldn't take that as a sign of your righteousness. Jesus' encouragement, his command to the people he was speaking to, was all of you, repent. A lot of times we wonder why God doesn't get rid of all of the evil in the world, but does that include the evil in us? Of course, God should judge all the really bad people, the Hitlers of the world. But at what point does the misuse of free will become excusable? If we're fair, and we really want evil to be done away with. That includes the evil in us. Why is God not judging evil and getting rid of all of it right now? 2 Peter 3.9 The Lord is not slow considering his promise as some regard slowness, but he's being patient towards you because he does not wish for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. God is not negligent with his creation. He's not apathetic. He's not absent. He is actively patient so that as many people as possible could know his mercy. Because here's the thing. 
We can't excuse away evil or spiritualize it away and say, well, it's okay because God's going to use it for something good. God can use evil against itself, but evil is evil. Suffering is something we should mourn and be upset about. We are called to weep with those who weep and mourn with those who mourn because the tragedy and the suffering that we see in the world is not the way that God designed it to be. It's wrong. And God is angry about evil. His wrath is going to be poured out on it. God allows certain things to happen so that evil might ultimately be undone, and as many people as possible might come to know his love and mercy. But he's not going to be patient forever. The three stories I've shared show that God is present in our suffering. He has a purpose, and he desires as many people as possible to be reconciled to him. And if you want to see the clearest image of that and want to see what God is doing to undo evil, look at the cross where Jesus was the good and better Job, the ultimate suffering servant who endured pain and tragedy and suffering so that the work of the adversary might be undone. And at the end of that work, he was raised to the right hand of God so that he might be our good high priest and pray for us. Hebrews chapter 4 describes Jesus as a sympathetic high priest. The Greek word there means to actually suffer alongside. Jesus was a man who endured injustice, rejection from his family, betrayal, the death of loved ones. He understands what you're going through because he's been through it. And so when you pray to Jesus, you have a God who sympathizes, who suffers alongside you who promises to give us grace and mercy in abundance whenever we need it. Jesus is also the good and better Joseph, who suffered at the hands of those who used their free will to choose sin and evil. But what man meant for evil, God intended for good, who through the unjust and absolutely tragic death of the Savior accomplished the ultimate good, our salvation. And even now, we can be like Joseph's brothers, who were afraid that Joseph had held a grudge against him because of the evils of the past. But in Christ, we hear kind and comforting words. You are fully loved, fully redeemed, fully forgiven. Sons and daughters of the living God co-heirs with him in eternity. But what about the suffering we go through now? Where is God in that? He is Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. And he's turning the evils of the world, what the adversary means to mock us and to shut us down, inside out for our good. Romans chapter 5 says that even though we suffer, we can rejoice in those sufferings because they produce endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not fail. Just as in the life of Job, that which is meant to destroy us and our faith actually builds our faith and points us more directly to the day in Revelation where Jesus wipes every tear from our eyes, where there is no more hunger, no more suffering, no more pain, no more illness. And he says, behold, I make all things new. And so we echo John's words at the very end of the Bible, Maranatha. Come, Lord Jesus, come. I can't tell you why you're suffering, and I don't know what's going to come next, 
But I do know that God is present, He is active, and He's not done. This episode was brought to you in part by United We Pray. United We Pray is a podcast devoted to praying and thinking about racial strife, especially between Christians. Come join us in praying for the unity of God's people.